Among many Orthodox Jews, there is a crisis of faith. While I don't have hard evidence to prove this, anecdotally, it seems that many individuals struggle with belief in the fundamental tenets of Judaism. Is there anything that we can do to help educate our children to be believing Jews? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Modern Orthodoxy in its current incarnation represents a contradiction. On the one hand, we welcome knowledge from every quarter and believe that engagement with science, literature, and more will lead us closer to God. On the other hand, we know that this engagement can be dangerous. To take a very simple example, think of evolution, natural selection, adaptation, and so forth. At first glance, these ideas seem to contradict a simple reading of Perak Aleph of Breshit. Obviously, there are many solutions to this quandary, but let's not pretend that the problem doesn't even arise in the first place. It may well be that for segments of the Haredi world, there's less of a problem. Rejecting any knowledge that prima facie contradicts the Torah means that there is no struggle. But for those of us who see value in outside wisdom, which I believe is a more classically Jewish approach, problems arise which can challenge faith. And of course, aside from specific questions that arise, there is the larger issue, the question about God. Questions about divine justice, theodicy, God's very existence, these arise in every quarter, no matter the community. And in a world where, for many, God has been pushed to the fringes, faith becomes less of a birthright and more of a choice. So how can we teach faith? Are there strategies to help inculcate Amuna? Over the next several months, I'll be exploring this issue intermittently on this podcast. For our first installment, I was honored to speak to an old friend of mine, Rabbi Shmuel Feld in Washington, D.C., who was a true Jewish educational expert, someone whom teachers approach to learn how to better educate and inspire their students. Rabbi Shmuel Feld is the founding director of the Jewish Education Innovation Challenge, JEIC, working to radically improve the quality of Jewish education in day schools. In his more than 25 years in Jewish education, he has served as a teacher, instructional leader, and principal. He brings a practical and visionary lens to educational innovation based on his many professional experiences outside of schools, including running field training for the U.S. Public Health Service. Rabbi Shmuel Feld, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum. It is really a pleasure, Rabbi Khan. I have to say that this interview is really just an excuse because we're recording this a couple of days before Thanksgiving, and the two most memorable Thanksgivings I ever had took place in your home many years ago in 1993 and 1995, one in Chicago and one in Washington. This is simply a means for me to relive that wonderful memory. So thank you for doing it, particularly at this time of year. You're very kind. You also added me as a uh, Jew who does Thanksgiving. I appreciate that. Oh, I hope that wasn't a secret. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) Today, our topic really is inculcating belief in students, whether they're children or older students. One of the biggest challenges that I as an educator, and I'm sure many other educators have found, is going from just teaching Torah, teaching Jewish ideas, whatever they might be, and allowing that transfer to happen, that that conversion almost from intellectual experience to an actual internal belief. 
And many, many people are having a hard time with this. I can even go further, particularly nowadays. There's so many questions that confront believers. How does one, in your opinion, confront this issue? I'll just throw it right out there. How do you teach belief? That's really an excellent question. One of the things I would like to point out is that we've got about 75 years worth of data from Jewish day schools in North America about what works and what doesn't work. Uh, we have a long set of teachers who have decided that they want to work the students into uh, a huge amount of content or that they want to sit and just talk about what bothers the students and all sorts of things that we have very different setups. And we really have spoken to many teachers, many, many principals about what it is that works and doesn't work and things that I've seen over time. Uh, one of the things that's really been a problem in the last 20 years has been uh, we shifted from a content-heavy curriculum to skill-heavy curriculum. And then after that, we worked a little bit more on some alternative curricular designs like project-based learning and a few other things. And what we've really done is to perfect in many ways how to get the students to understand the substance of things in Torah and things in the Gemara and uh, really not have to commit in their minds to any kind of beliefs. It's completely possible to have a really wonderful artificial intelligence sit there in a classroom and be able to do excellently on tests and for the teacher to feel very good about what it is that they're doing. And one of the reasons that happens is because we've created this strange structure in the post-industrial schooling phase where we are interested in what's demonstrable. We're interested in what we can look at and what we can see and what we can talk about. So I need to give a test so I can demonstrate that I'm doing this. And as a teacher, you want to demonstrate that you're doing well. So you want the students to be able to demonstrate that they can do whatever skill or content or other thing that you could have them do. And as a result, we're winding up with a certain type of students at the end. And it doesn't really hit into a lot of the key things that make someone into a deep believer in, in a religion. So, Shmuel, are you saying that the problem is at least largely in part that the teachers themselves need to demonstrate success? And as a result of that, it has to be something testable, whereas belief isn't something testable. It's something which is internal. Call it, if you like, right brain activity. It's not the typical activity that, or skill or content that one would normally teach in a school. Is that what you mean or is it something else? It's yes and. One of the big problems in Jewish education is to understand what the role of a teacher is. There's been a very difficult way of thinking about things that people have said we're going to change from stage on the stage to guide on the side, and a couple of other sort of knick-knack words that get thrown around about this thing. But people are looking at this problem very, very differently than it should be looked at. If the problem we're trying to solve is how do I get the students to be able to know this set of Rashis, this set of text, this set of Gemara or this set of Halachos or those kind of things, that's easy. Pretty much we can do that. And I'm also going to tell you that it's going to hit a range of wonderful executive functioning issues in students and certain types of other memory issues in students. And there'll be some that'll be really successful and some that'll be less successful. If that's what you want and that's what's easy to demonstrate, that's fine. What you have to do is shift your thinking about what it is that you want the students to wind up with at the end. And it is extremely difficult to do. Because one of the problems in classic yeshiva universe in the last hundred years is that being in the base midrash is less about understanding and more about winning. What do you it's mean by winning? What do you mean by that? It means that I am much more interested, instead of getting my understanding of what your opinion is, of beating it, of saying that it's better, 
of looking at people in the base midrash and maybe people arranging a pecking order of who's got the more knowledge or who's got the better svara ability or who's those things are how those are arranged. When you look at a place and they talk about a strong student, very often they're referring to their ability to win an argument hmm. or their ability to test well. They're not talking about deep believers. There's no contest. There's always that joke that, you know, look who thinks that they're they're so low on the scale. Look who thinks they're dirt. That kind of thing rarely happens in yeshivas in, the, in a real way in the sense that they, there isn't a, a construct for students to feel that they're dealing with building their amuna, except if it's in a one-on-one with the teacher because the student seems like they're in trouble. So that is a very dangerous place to be if that is our bread and butter of our religion, is dealing with people who want to be believers and deeply intrinsically motivated to want to do the religion when they're not sitting in front of the teacher. So does the normal way that Torah is taught in institutions, is it anathema or does it work at opposite ends or opposite goals to what you're describing in terms of emuna? In other words, that decision to try and be the top from an academic perspective, that's the way it works. And frankly, right. if you look at Chazal, you look at Gemara, you look at Midrash, that's how it works. In other words, they're trying to beat each other. That's ingrained in our tradition and it's not a bad thing. Are you saying that this style of learning, this style of teaching is inimical to what we're trying to accomplish with regards to belief? Well, it Two things. One, I challenge the idea that in the Gemara they're trying to beat each other. Because, in fact, one of the guys who is great at beating someone else is Alicia Benavoya, who it turns out is not really the model that we want to work with because he gets named Dachar and a whole bunch of other stuff happens. But the idea that's really strong is getting to truth. And that's understanding. That's not beating you. That's not my saying my way is right. That's my saying my way and your way have to really be tested against each other. The ultimate statement in the Gemara, which I love, is what is the opposite of teku in the Gemara? The opposite of teku, which is the two sides, neither can be proven as one opposed to the other, is the opposite is hilchata. One can be proven as opposed to the other. All right? The Gemara is 99% about process. It's about how do you figure out which is the truth that we're dealing with in this kind of situation? What is the authenticity of it? Where does it come from? There's a lot of clever work that goes on there, and there are certain people who are more relied on than others and people who are considered sharper than others. But bludgeoning someone over the head with the fact that I'm smarter or better, etc., that's a path that I think is unfortunately alive and well and needs to be curtailed if you want students to develop a muna. It sounds like you're describing very much the way that Masecha Beitza praises Beit Hillel for always mentioning Beit Shammai first. Correct. That's exactly what I'm going after. And also, there are other ones like that. There are many times where you have, like, Nimashur Sadin and a whole bunch of other things which don't go along with beating the other side. Like the fact that you have a variety of cases where a rav will say to a student, that's the halacha, and the student will say, really, is that the halacha? And they'll say, well, for you it is. Meaning that it's it's the case that you need to be din for an excellent reason, which is that it brings peace to B'nai Yisrael, or that you, this is how you need to act because you need to be more machmer on yourself as an individual. These are, are methodologies that are very clear to me in the Gemara, that it's not what you said initially, which is about beating the other person. It is, however, become ingrained in the last 200 years in the way the yeshivas work. If you look at like what people, why people think the Beis Alevi is such an amazing piece, it's not because of the brilliance of his Shalos and Chuvos and the really clear way he describes pieces in the Gemara. It's he could beat almost anyone in an argument. I mean, that's one of the reasons why he's considered to be the top guy. So what do we do about it, given that for 200 years it's become ingrained in our system, and I can say even further, 
in the larger world, outside the Jewish world, obviously people who want to get into Harvard are going to have to beat their competitors in school. That's simply the way the system works now, even if it's not a traditionally Torah way of doing things. So what do we do? That's a really interesting question, one that I'm spending a lot of time working on. So there's a couple of things I would say that are very important. The first one to realize is that I am absolutely not saying to give up on understanding text and divine information and those things. It's absolutely not what I'm saying at all. I am being extremely clear that you want a student who is seeking sacred text and divine information. That is a critical component of a true believer is to try to seek out those things. The student has to feel a little bit disturbed that there's something wrong. One of the things that happens if a student is completely nachas ruach, if they're completely happy with whatever it is you're telling them, and there's no reason for them to feel like I have an internal need to find something out, they're, they're not going to go anywhere. They're, they're going to they're be perfectly fine. If you give them all the answers that they want, then they'll get all the answers they want, and they'll be sitting there with all the answers they want. You want to encourage the intrinsic motivation of a student finding out information, of autonomous learning. You, you want that. You don't want to just give them an array manufactured piece and give it to them, and then they give you the right answers back, and that's how it works. That winds up being really detrimental to a student trying to figure that out. Let me put it like this. There are several ways that I would say for teachers to really sort of think differently about their function. One is that you don't want them to learn text as much as you want them to seek out text and divine information. You have to make it clear to them that there are answers that are hidden in these texts and you should want to get after them. You know, well, how do you do that? that? Frankly, that's, that's, a, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a whole other discussion. I guess we'll save it for next time. Yeah, 100%. But there's a whole other other piece about, for instance, if you tell if you tell a student, you translate this for the appropriate developmental age and, and religious understanding, which is the Havamina is that every pasuk of the Torah is necessary. Right? That's the Havamina. Every pasuk of the Torah is necessary. And as a result of that, there can't be a pasuk in the Torah that isn't necessary for you to be able to develop a Muna around. So as a result of that, when you look at a Pesach and you say, well, the snarky guy says, right? the answer is, you, well, Rambam was going to tell you that every time you say that, it introduces a halacha. And I can give you three lessons on uh, the difference between Daber and Lemor. And the fact is that if you look at the Malbim, he's going to tell you that the next two Pesukim after that are, have all these language indicators in it as to how this halacha applies and to whom it applies and how it applies. So every single Pasuk is really a deep concept about mitzvahs and about how we relate to Kaddish Baruch. But you said something which I want to harp on for a second. That'll bring us more to the question of how to teach Amuna. You yeah. said the Hava Amina, the working assumption, is that yeah. every Pasuk teaches us something and has a reason for being there. How do you yeah. teach someone or convince, perhaps is a better term, someone that that Hava Amina is accurate? And that really gets to the question of inculcating faith in a student. How do you convince yeah. that student that that's actually true? Well, first thing you have to start with is the concept that having dealt with a lot of Jewish day school educators, they don't believe that necessarily. And there are many of them who will tell you that, well, you know, these psukim are, you know, they're the buildup for this thing or they're the structure for this. Or one of those things that is very difficult to start with is you have to have a changing of a mindset in how Judaics is taught. I mean, to give you another example, one of the things I think is it's incredibly important is they have to see Judaism as a system that is useful and important. You have to be able to explain why it is that, for instance, there's a halacha that says that an eldest child gets pishnayim, gets a double portion, 
And the same religion is also concerned about not putting honey on the ketoret. You have to be able to explain how that's not just disparate, because then the, the book of Yeshayahu is going to tell you that everything becomes kavl kav salatad. Everything becomes disparate little details that no one cares about. You have to be able to see the mechanism, the systemic value of the religion in order to be able to get it to work. Okay, well then tell me how I would do that. I'm a teacher in a classroom and I want to teach my students that this religion is a system which is worth following as opposed to this annoying thing which they were brought up with and as soon as they leave high school, they're out. How do you, right. how do you get them to get to that point? How do I inculcate that in my student? Pick a grade level. Start with that. Let's go with seventh grade. Perfect. So if you start with seventh grade and you say, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to start from the beginning of the year and we're going to right now, whatever you think the answer is, you are going to write a less than 15 word sentence that tells me what the entire religion is about. All right. Just give you a, it's just, you, you're going to write it and it's going to be private. You're not sharing it with me. I'm not seeing it. No one else should see it. This is what you're going to do. All right. And as we go through the year, you're going to have opportunities to update that. And to try to figure out if the things that I tell you actually match that theory and match what's going on. So, for instance, the seventh graders are certainly capable of doing this. If you share with them, you know, Ramban's going to tell you in less than 15-word sentence, uh, and I hope I'm representing him correctly, that the entire purpose of the Torah is to create a Jewish nation in the land of Israel that has a deep belief in a Kaddish Baruch Okay. All right? And that by Jewish here, I mean to keep the 613 mitzvahs. Ramban is going to say that. As opposed to Rambam was going to say to you that the entire purpose of the religion is in order to be able to create the maximization of free will in connection to a Kodesh Baruch right? And it has to do with the other things as well, which is why it is that he points out the mitzvah of believing in God and living in Eretz Yisrael, whereas Ramban does not. Those are like little teeny things just to think about as they move forward in trying to develop it. So then you tell the student, you know, as you're going through, if they say, for instance, Judaism is about being a good person, which I hear a lot, people say that. So great. So tell me how sitting in the sukkah makes you into a better person. Tell me how that works. Okay. If you can tell me how that works, then that works into your system. If not, then you have to change that sentence. And by doing a year worth of growth in that in that one exercise, you will discover a wealth of material about the student and what they understand about the situation. It sounds to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of this is coming in terms of the teacher figuring out his own particular educational goals. If what you're saying is the fundamental bottom line of what the teacher is trying to accomplish, that means that everything he teaches, whether it's Gemara or Tanakh or Halacha, will fall into that larger rubric of what does this gain in terms of Amuna? What does this teach me in terms of helping the student develop, in this case, a systemic understanding of the Jewish faith? Is that right? It's about teacher goals? Yeah, I think that one of the ways it starts is the teacher has to assume the responsibility of controlling the culture in the room. Um, that's one of the major things that has to happen. I can tell you that a lot of students would really like to just sit back and take notes the entire year and not engage and, and, and judge the teacher based on how it is that they're doing and what it is that's going on. That would be great. But the thing you have to grip is that the student and the teacher have to be partners. They have to really get to a point where you have a collaborative effort in order to be able to move the student forward one year worth of time in what they're doing. If it happens to be in Chomish or Navi or Gemara, or Jewish history, or whatever it is, that's just the medium by which you're moving that forward. And as a result, whether or not, the, if the student is doing poorly on Talmud exams, that's an indicator that you're not setting up a system in which they're going to be able to succeed in that belief part of this. 
because that means that the reason that they're learning Gemara is, again, in order to be able to demonstrate to you so you can demonstrate to other people how well my students are getting what it is I'm teaching. All right. And that as a methodology might work in order to teach the kid Talmud. But you and I have a particular classmate in mind who uh, demonstrated that they're amazing at teaching Talmud and not necessarily great at Amuna. I'm sure everyone listening knows plenty of people who are in that same category, which is exactly why the problem is so obvious. Right. hundred percent. And look, it also is, I've seen enough quotes from people who basically are clear that when they were forced to learn Talmud, that it did not necessarily increase their love of Judaism. I mean, look at the, the uh, increase in the last 30 years of young ladies who've been learning Gemara. And while it has produced a subsection that of people who are really interested in the Talmudic process, and interested in the halachic process, which is great. On the other side of it, there's a whole bunch of other people who wound up with the same problem that a lot of the boys did, which is that, I really couldn't, I mean, the, the Gemara I always point to is the Gemara in Pesachim, in the first parak where it talks about if a white mouse with, with chametz comes into your house and a black mouse with chametz leaves your house, and there's an entire page of this. Right. For some people, this is fascinating. For some people, this is the ultimate height of ridiculousness. And why am I being forced to be able to do this? And the fact is that if it's taught the wrong way, it ingrains the concept that the Talmud is based on, I like blue, I like red, and we're just yelling and screaming at each other. Well, let me go and take it in a different direction, because what you're describing is very interesting. A student, in our case, seventh grade, using this example, who all year long is trying to develop his understanding of what the system of Judaism is. But let's say you get to the end of the year, and that same student, he has a nice definition based on what you, the teacher, have taught him in terms of Judaism, and he has something which you, the teacher, are happy with. He might say, yeah, I hear this is what Judaism is. I still don't believe in it. How do you make that leap? Well, there are three things to push back on that. The first one is that whether or not the teacher is happy with it is only in the sense of the structure of it, not in the, in the content. That's number one. Number two, which is... What do you mean by that? Can you, can you explain what you mean by that? Meaning that you're, you're not interested in, did you get the right answer? Because this is a multiple open-ended topic, as I was trying to explain by, by demonstrating Ramban and Rambam having different opinions. If Rambam was grading Ramban, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be saying, uh, well, that's wrong. But the, 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 idea is, it, the idea is that there is this, this uh, concept that you want the structure and the exercise for the student to have to go through. And one of the things that happens is, as a student begins to master a particular topic, Many times, not always, many times they get a very personal, intrinsic motivation about doing this. Now, I give as a very clear concept that when I got married, my mastery of washing dishes was not as high as it should be. And I have since become much better at mastered washing dishes. It doesn't mean I want to do it. But at the same time, from a flip side, this is one aspect, is this system issue of being able to see, have them see the entire thing as a system because it's one of the things that breaks down. Oftentimes, in modern Orthodox education, I have seen students come out at the end with a significance issue, which has nothing to do with a system issue. It's a significance issue. That is, I don't think God cares whether or not I do any of this stuff. God cares about the big things like I learned in Tanakh. And apparently, some people are really, really concerned about whether or not my ox gores his ox. And apparently, they're deeply concerned about this. But at the same time, whether or not I personally do X activity or don't keep Shabbos the way that I was taught or all those other things, uh, those things God doesn't care about. And that is a consistent refrain that I have heard from a large number of students. And what do you answer them when they say that? When significance well, is an issue? Well, there's a separate issue going on there, which is 
that they have created a wonderful way for them to interpret their relationship with God, which makes it so that they get a pass on everything. God is completely apathetic towards me, so it doesn't matter what I do. That is a great way. One of the things that is important of my five basic big things, one of which is that the students want to uh, seek out sacred text, that you want them to see the system as useful and important. One of the other things is that you have to teach them how to make a relationship with God. If, they, if you don't teach them how to make a relationship with Hashem in that way, that automatically is going gonna, is gonna to submarine anything you're going to do. It's going to actually make it go, go downhill from there. Wait, teach them how to make a relationship with Hashem. Sounds right. great. How do you teach that? Well, start from the beginning, which is that you have a group of students who think um, mostly are taught a construct of God in kindergarten, first and second grade, and it's not really updated at all until they get much, much older and they either struggle with it or they use it as a way to infantilize the religion and get rid of it. Right. So it is a great gift to them. In seventh grade, for instance, for you to say to them, Ma'ashem Duresh Mimcha, just what, what do you think God wants from you? You know, what, what is it God wants you to do? You are a seventh grader. What does God want from you to do? Why were you born? We have another Havamina. You wouldn't have been born unless God had a role for you. That's right. something I'm going to tell you. Whether or not you want to believe it or not, you have to come to that belief yourself. That there is a concept that you have significance because you were born, and therefore God wants you to do something. Whatever that is, it's going to be involved. You're only going to be able to figure it out and involved with when you look at the Torah and the relationship with Hashem in a close and deep way, and that you behave in that way, that stripping away the other pieces will help you be able to find out what you're supposed to be here for, what your significance is. Now, you can make many different relationships with God. You can make a Skaranonish relationship with God, where you just feel like God's this overbearing parent who is constantly nitpicky on you. You can create a relationship with God where you think God forgives everything that you do, because, you know, God understands. So, you need to rely on the sacred text in order to be able to help create boundaries for what your personal relationship with God is set for. And that's one of the things which you can tell students at a very early age, and one of the biggest gifts you can tell them in kindergarten, first, and second grade is, you will grow in your relationship with God, and you will understand God very differently from how you understand it now. And if you don't revisit this every single year of your life, it's a problem. Then let me ask you a question on that specifically. Let me ask two very, very acute cases. Yeah. Let's say a student says, very nice, you're assuming that I'm here for a reason because otherwise why would God create me? I don't even believe in God at all. What do you tell right. that student? Well, first of all, that there's a, always going to be a significant point with each student as to why they don't believe in God. And to say I don't believe in God is a wonderful duck and cover. It's like if you're in a conversation with someone and you say, what do you do for a living? And they say accountant. It ends the conversation very quickly. You know, people are usually go, oh, that's nice, and they go on because they want to hear about the details. You say, I don't believe in God. It, it ends the conversation very, very quickly. With apologies right? to all the accountants who are listening right now. <laughs> My apologies to all accountants who are listening. <laughs> the most important function when you talk to a student about belief in God is when they say, I don't believe in God, most people begin the Inquisition side. Why don't you believe in God? What is wrong with you? Well, what? That's not helpful. The real statement is to say, okay, what parameters do you see about your not belief? How do you explain the universe? How do you answer some, you know, very important questions about what is running the universe, etc.? If you've designed a universe which is essentially a large, random, scary place, and that you're comfortable with that, 
there's uh, very little to do in order to say to the student, well, you have to shift that. But at the same time, if you get them to understand, to disturb them somewhat, and to say, the design that you're creating is a design of convenience, it is a design that, that doesn't necessarily answer some deep questions, nor does it challenge you, quite frankly. I mean, one of the things that happens in a lot of the atheist literature is this imagined concept that somehow that we have to be noble. Like, I read their literature, and my response is, well, that's great. I can go and do whatever I want. The only thing which matters is power, because you have the power to take me down, or you have the power to not take me down. If I'm smart enough and I'm strong enough, I can create my own morality, and, and you have no ability to stop me, and that's just how it works. It sounds like, in part, what you're saying, Shmuel, is what you say to the student or imply to the student is, tell me about the God you don't believe in. In other right. words, who is that God that you don't believe in? Because the G word, as it's often called, is itself fraught with meaning that may or may not be accurate. Yeah, the problem often is that students have developed, especially ones that grow up in North America, develop a very Christian concept of God or a Santa Claus concept of God. If I do right, I get presents. If I do wrong, I get coal. Yeah, what C.S. Lewis yeah. used to call the grandfather in the sky argument. Correct, 100%. But look at it like this. One of the things I tell students they need to do of the five things that like the teacher should be teaching about this is seeking the sacred text, making the system, teaching them how to make a relationship with God. But even more than that, the student is responsible for choosing mentors and friends. Hmm. This is one of the things which students oftentimes take no responsibility for, and they just wait for them to fall on their laps. And it's a very significant problem. And we're talking about a seventh grader over here. He doesn't think yeah. he needs mentors. You know, his friends are his friends. They're the kids who live near him. So what is he supposed to do? Well, what you're saying is that they are designing their friendships based on social convenience, geographic convenience, people who happen to be okay with hanging out with them, who just kind of gravitate to them. And what I'm saying is that that's an interesting way to sleepwalk through life. You know, yeah, I'm not saying discard people who, who you are close to in those ways. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that if you tell a student that they need to find a, a mentor, all right, and that the teacher is clear, I might not be it. I might not be that mentor, but you need to find one. And if you don't find one, that's on you. Don't walk around saying that uh, I couldn't understand God when you get to the end of high school because you didn't actually find a mentor who you could talk to. It could be a teacher. It could be someone who's not a teacher. It could be someone who's, you know, someone who's in the community who you're very close with. Having someone that you can actually talk to and develop your concepts about God is something that a student needs to feel is their responsibility or else they're going to wind up spending six years, seven through 12th grade, and just winding up being, you know, saying, well, that didn't happen for me. Well, it's like standing in the middle of a wonderful amusement park and never going on a ride and saying, oh, I didn't have any fun. You know, Shmuel, I think this is a time for a shout out to a mentor you and I both had in high school, Rabbi Moshe Simkovich, who uh -oh. became a mentor to the two of us. He spoke at both of our weddings, who's your Mishadar Kedush, and he spoke under my chuppah in Israel. And we were both lucky that we found somebody who was willing to discuss these issues, who could be someone that was fun to talk to and at the same time was willing to discuss anything with us. I would really point out that one of the things about Arisinkovich, which, which was deeply special, was I'll tell you a personal story about that. One morning I came in, as you know, Scott, I, was, I used to daven at the local minion that was close to us, and I didn't daven at the school minion. I would come in, and during the school minion time, I'd have... Uh, basically, I do homework that was due that day. Little secret. But one of the things one of I the played things basketball was, during that same slot when I also dove in at the early <laughs> minion. <laughs> um, one of the times I, I just didn't do the homework. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't. That's where you and I were different. <laughs> um, 
One of the things that was an amazing shift for me was one time I had I started talking to Rabbi Sinkovich about a deep theological topic at about you know ten minutes before davening started, and he walked into a classroom with me and we sat down. We talked for about forty five minutes, and then I got to the end of talking and I realized he was supposed to be in davening taking care, and he actually took the time instead of going to davening he took the time to actually talk me through this problem. And like, really, it was like I, I, it was an amazing moment for me to feel like someone actually cared enough to talk through those kind of things. And when I finally started picking up on things, I and I had a, a really an amazing turnaround moment in my life when I, you know, when I was in in high school, and for whatever reason, uh, I was in a situation where I read uh, Derech Hashem. I had someone who I could talk to about it. I went to him, and he and I had multiple conversations about Derech Hashem, which deeply constructed for me how to think about God and how to think about the system of Judaism. Yeah, one of the great gifts of my life is the fact that I have maintained that relationship with Rabbi Simukovich to this day. He and I, of course, he still remains my Rebbe, but he also became a colleague when we taught together in the same yeshiva. And to this day, I still talk to him and have regular conversations with him about topics that matter to me. So that's certainly true. Let's go on to the idea about friends. How about making sure that you have the right friends? Again, we're talking about kids. We're talking about kids. Well, no, that's one of the things that I always tell I always tell teachers. Think about the following thing, all right? One of the great failures in education is a pro- program that was called DARE, the DARE program of the 1980s and 90s. If you lived in the United States at that time, you remember the, uh, you know, the lengthy ways that people went to to try to explain to you that anyone who did drugs was a loser and a whole bunch of other stuff. And in fact, there's tons of evidence that in the programs that many high schools that it was implemented in. Uh, t- students, in fact, did more drugs than they did in other high schools. It, it was, it was, in fact, a absolute complete failure because there was no empathy for what students are really like. There's no concept, no construct in which they were trying to do the end user. They were trying to look at the people and say, what is it that really these kids are like and understand? So again, it's developmental. You can't tell a fifth grader that um, you really shouldn't be friends with such and such. That doesn't work. But when you say to them, you know what friends are? With friends, you have like a deep connection. You have honesty. You have humor. You have empathy, generosity, trust, encouragement, steadfastness. All right, because one of the things that students usually construct friendships on is social status, is the effect of social status, and a whole bunch of other things that are connected to that. And there are many who construct it based on who I'm having the most fun with, and there are many who construct it based on who can tolerate me. You know, and there's a whole bunch of other things that go in there. Geographic location is one of them. It doesn't always work, but it certainly is part of it. And also if they're friends or parents and a whole bunch of other things that affect whether or not these things are the case. There's an interesting idea that if you start telling them earlier on about what friends are and what friends are supposed to be, that they're going to hit critical components. They're going to hit points where they're going to feel that this friendship that I had in second and third grade really isn't doing the things I think friendship should do. And that is going to help them grow. They're not going to change friendships in seventh grade or eighth grade. You want them to be able to create friendships that are going to be able to help them in their relationship with God. That's one of the things that you want to help create. And, and do you find that students old, really do that and they really do follow that as opposed to, this is a nice theoretical idea, but in practice they're friends with whoever they're friends with? Part of it is that it alters some friendships. What it does really is that if you give them better guidelines for friendships moving on, and what mentors they should have moving on, it becomes a very open and interesting discussion. Most teachers are not comfortable going there. But if you tell students that, for instance, one of the things I always used to say to students of mine, which I've discovered was revolutionary, was I would say you should never be in a relationship in which you feel you're being abused. 
if you feel you're being abused or you feel you're being used for like your wealth or you're being used for, you know, that you're strong and therefore you can do things for someone else. If that's what you feel the relationship has turned into, you should get out of that relationship as fast as possible. And I used to tell it to students pretty regularly as part of, you know, different things, which I used to talk about with my students and uh, talking about fifth grade through 12th graders. And I got a lot of feedback where students would say to me, yeah, yeah, I used to be friends with them. And I found out they were just using me for my house. Hmm. Or I found out they were using it. They're using me because, you know, I was helping them with their homework. And I did a whole bunch of other things, which if you make the students aware of the different parameters, which really define friendship, instead of one of the worst things, because this is really one of the things that's a critical component. Loneliness is an incredibly powerful force is something that makes people do lots of dumb things. It makes people do lots of things that change their personalities in order to fit in. And or in some cases, if you go to a, any university and you see there's some Orthodox kids who don't connect with the other Orthodox kids, they will stop being Orthodox in order to connect with kids they feel they are more comfortable with. That happens. So just to review, can you go over the five things you just mentioned? Just review them for me one more time and for our listeners. The five elements sure. that you discussed. You want students who are really seeking sacred text and divine information. That's one. Two, you want them to be seeing the system of Judaism as useful and important. Number three, you want them to be choosing mentors and friends. That they, they, they should not feel it happens accidentally, but that they, they are of a construct and they're choosing at some point. Again, these are all aspirational. This is not happening tomorrow. Right. right? The fourth is that she'll be teaching them how to make a relationship with Hashem. That's a critical component to this part of it. And also that they need to be a discerning receiver and an active transmitter. Okay, we haven't discussed that yet. What do you mean by that? I mean that one of the problems that happens with students is that they're going to be exposed to a huge amount of knowledge. And as the Internet explodes and continues to be unkempt from, uh, you know, they, they really won't be able to put up any kind of barriers as things move on that you have to be able to be a discerning receiver about what it is that's going into your mind about Judaism. You have to be able to look at it and say, either I need to expand my philosophy or I need to say this doesn't fit in. So if you get a concept that says that everything in the universe is Hashem, right? It's a classic Kabbalistic idea. The, the part of the Ein Sof of Kodesh Baruch Hu is that everything in the universe is Hashem. This, this, you know, my drink is Hashem, my sitting down is Hashem. Everything is part of Hashem. For some students, that information is wow mind-blowing and they really can't deal with it and they reject it for some students that answers a whole bunch of questions for them and they therefore it it really helps them understand how everything in the universe is sacred in some format and so that in and of itself is an important idea that you want them to become a person who wants to transmit these things because what i've discovered is when students just absorb things you have no idea if they care or not you want to know if they care or not? Are they willing to explain it to someone else? Are they willing to, to be the person who's going to do the thing that is going to explain it or do it or be responsible for it? You can tell the difference in, in students who are actively willing to transmit this information versus the ones who are just absorbing and give it over on a test. That's what I mean by active transmitter, a non-required active transmitter. Not because it's in class, not because I'm watching you and therefore I'm seeing what's a good student because you're actively transmitting. But if a student is someone who, for instance, when a new kid comes into the building, they go over and they start helping them out, they start helping them to fit in and start helping them. To, that's a generally a very positive f function, that they want them to be an active part of what's going on. That's fascinating. We're almost out of time, Shmuel. I want to ask you one final question. There's obviously sure. so much more to discuss. But 
when it comes to belief in Torah, which if I have to say the two big questions that people have about belief nowadays, I would tend to think they would fall, first of all, in belief in God, and then specifically belief in Torah as a divine document. In your opinion, how much should a teacher try to convince a student about the specifics? In other words, that every word of the Torah has been a shamayim. Is that something which the teacher should do, or is it enough to simply say, it doesn't really matter as long as you accept that this is somehow related to God and will increase your relationship with God and improve your relationship with God? In other words, to what degree should a teacher who's confronted with the issue engage specifically with specific questions about higher or lower criticism, and how much instead should a teacher say, I don't want to talk about that because I don't really care about that, quote-unquote. What I care about is that you accept this as however it was created, the way that God wants to inform you how he wants you to act. What's your opinion about that? One of the problems is that this really opens up a much larger topic, which is the question of every individual student is essentially the lead in their own soap opera. They have a complicated life, and where they are right now is not necessarily at a place where they can hear that. And a lot of times they're also at a place where they are knee-deep in something else. So when you say, this is the truth, and this is how I want you to think about things. You have to do it in a way which is a lot less direct of, I want to tell you this is the truth, you will write it back to me on the test, and that is what the truth is. Instead, you have to start getting a very different understanding, which is to say, this method, this one systemic thing I'm telling you, is incredibly useful, because it resolves a lot of problems. Like, if you say that God wants you as a partner, that's what God created the world by. In Simpson, he basically pulled himself away and created a bubble. And therefore, that bubble, in order for us to really change the world and make it successful, we have to be partners with God in a variety of ways in order to do that. There's tons of evidence of that in the Torah. There's tons of evidence of that in the Tanakh. There's tons of evidence of that in, in Teresh Pen in a considerable number of ways. But the notion that you wanted that Hashem wants you as a partner, that's something you have to start early. And you have to say to them, that's what we want, that's what you want, and that's what you have to think about. That's useful. It's useful for me to think of myself as a partner to God. To think of myself as a servant to God, for some people, is useful because just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And for a lot of other kids, it's not. So you have to discover in some ways, you're making a systemic construction. You have to figure out how it's useful to the student to think about that. Now, there's, I came from a, you came from a background where that was not an interest in most of the teachers. Mm -hmm. They were not interested in how it was useful to us. As far as they were concerned, because they were second and third generations, or first and second generations, uh, removed from the Holocaust, they were interested in the survival of Judaism at all costs, and therefore you have to accept this and we have to move on. That is no longer the case. We're now moving to that third and fourth generation after a major crisis in the religion, which happened dozens of times in our past. It's the same pattern in which by the third and fourth generation, the new, the new Derek really is getting chosen. And what you're seeing that's being chosen is stuff that uh, I'm a little concerned about. So one of the things that's really clear to me that's the bigger concept than necessarily covering another Temblata Gemara is to try to figure out for the student, how do you see this system as important and useful? And if the answer is, I don't know, or some dodgy answer, then you've got to do some other kind of groundwork in order to make that much more effective. Rav Shmuel Feld, I want to thank you very much for joining me today. This was really enlightening. I learned a lot, and I really hope you'll come back a different time, maybe even another Thanksgiving, perhaps a different time, to discuss <laughs> other issues in education because you have so much to give. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. This is fantastic. I really appreciate it. After the conclusion of our interview, Rabbi Feld told me that the biggest paradigm shift in teaching Jewish studies comes from this. 
thinking of the idea that preparation of the student plus the opportunity the student will encounter equals the success of developing belief. Let me say that again. The preparation of the student plus the opportunity that the student will encounter equals the success of developing belief. The moments of the student challenging or shaping belief usually come at moments outside of class, like at a sleepover or Shabbos afternoon or powerful emotional moment of some sort. Preparing students for a test is well-trodden ground. Preparing them for pivotal moments of belief needs some work. An important viewpoint here expressed by Rabbi Feld, a viewpoint that we ignore at our children and students' peril. Please let me know what you think. Write to me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks for joining me. I'm Scott Kahn. You've been listening to The Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.